Hello everyone, I'm Elizabeth and I'm Luke and welcome back to our podcast. Today we're going to be taking a really close look at Jesus' death and resurrection. There is so much here that we're not even really sure where to start, so we're just going to jump right into this. There are many traditions of Easter, as with most other holidays, that are done and celebrated without giving thought to why do we do this and what does this have to do with what we are celebrating. For example, Easter egg hunts, dying Easter eggs, the Easter bunny, Easter lilies, I could go on and on. Even the word Easter itself. We do know that some of these traditions do stem from pagan roots. As far as the word Easter, there are theories about its origin, but nothing definite where it came from. As for our family, we've always just called it Resurrection Day, which is what it is. Elizabeth, stop banging on the table. Sorry. I talk with my hands. I just did it again. I know the microphone's picking it up, so... uh... Sorry. Okay. Just continue. Okay. When you look at some of these things, it's like, what does this really have to do with Jesus' death and resurrection? Like, like where... the bunnies and the eggs. Bunnies don't lay eggs. Why is they that a thing? They don't eat eggs either. So. <laughs> I, I don't know why that became a part of uh, Easter. Well, I know that eggs kind of like represent new life and everything, but why the bunnies? Why did bunnies, why does the Easter bunny bring eggs? Where is it getting these eggs from? (laughs) But anyway, we're not going to focus on that. Just the facts and the truth about the historical events that took place around Jesus' death and resurrection. To start our story, we need to go back a week earlier to Palm Sunday. If you grew up in church like we did, Palm Sunday probably involved a little parade of the kids coming in, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, I was one of those kids, so I know this very well. Uh, So were you, Luke. We picture Jesus riding on a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem, crowds of people all over, uh, all along the sides of the roads, waving palm branches and seeing Hosanna, and there's excitement, and there's yelling, and it's just a lot happening. But what was really going on here? We need to first go back to society at that time. What did it look like? Remember back in the Old Testament how bad it was for the children of Israel when they were in Egypt? Through Moses and some really horrible plagues, God delivered them out of their slavery and extreme bondage. If you know the story, you know that the final night in Egypt was when the death angel went across the land and killed the firstborn male in each household. However, God told the children of Israel to kill a ram, put its blood on their doorposts, And this would be their protection, and the death angel would pass over that household. Right. So Passover is a major Jewish holiday that has been celebrated annually since then to remember the exodus from slavery in Egypt. Now back to the first century, this was the time the Jews started coming into Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus and his disciples were also heading there for Passover. Just like the bondage and oppression back in Egypt, there was great oppression in Israel because of the Roman rule. So during Jesus' time, Passover had become an opportunity to express their longing for political freedom from Rome. This was not always a peaceful time, often triggering riots, 
So the Romans brought in extra troops and they would not hesitate to shed blood to keep the peace. Frequently, men would come into Jerusalem on this day claiming to be the Messiah and start a riot or some big disturbance. Romans often increased the number of soldiers to keep the peace. So not too surprising, Jesus was not readily accepted by all as the Messiah. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Jerusalem at the time was a city of about 50,000 people. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, estimated that more than 3 million pilgrims made the difficult trek to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover each year. Even if the actual number was much lower, the city was crowded and bustling with activity. So, what really happened as Jesus rode the donkey towards Jerusalem that Sunday before Passover? First, he came out of the wilderness on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, as prophecy predicted the Messiah would do. Yet, he came to the people as the Lamb of God, not as a political deliverer. Jesus, the sinless Messiah who would die on mankind's behalf, presented himself in Jerusalem on the very day when each Jewish family selected a perfect lamb to be sacrificed later that week. There are a couple of things we need to take note of here. First, why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Answer, it fulfilled prophecy. We read in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus went out of his way to make certain that all the details of that prophecy were precisely fulfilled as they had been spoken of him hundreds of years before. The people in the crowd would have known the scriptures, so when Jesus appeared riding in on a donkey, they gathered in a huge multitude rejoicing and praising God for the mighty works they had seen. Jesus arrived not as a king on a war horse, but as one who was meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. Second, the Passover, unlike other festivals, required each family to sacrifice a lamb, or more specifically, a ram. Right. In Exodus 12.5 we read, quote, The animals you choose must be males that are a year old. They must not have any flaws. You may choose either sheep or goats. Unquote. So, every family needed to buy a lamb on the 10th day of the month and keep it until Passover. And on that day, beginning at the 9th hour, or 3 p.m., the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And we will see the significance of this later on in the story. On this day, the day that Jesus was entering Jerusalem riding on the donkey, was the day that the lambs were chosen. It's almost as if God was saying, here's my lamb, will you choose him? But instead of turning to Jesus, the lamb, the crowd misunderstood what kind of Messiah he was. Now, near where the road went down the Mount of Olives, the disciples, quote, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Luke 19, 37. Then the crowd joined in. They spread cloaks and branches on the road and started shouting Hosanna, which actually meant, 
please save us. Give us freedom. We're sick of these Romans. They waved palm branches, which were a symbol that had once been placed on Jewish coins when the nation was free. The branches did not symbolize peace and love, as Christians usually assume. They symbolized Jewish nationalism, an expression of the people's desires for political freedom. This was as political as it gets. In response, Jesus wept. The tears Jesus shed as people shouted hosannas were tears of grief for his people. They had it all wrong. Jesus foresaw the terrible devastation of Jerusalem that would result because the people did not recognize him as God's Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who offered political deliverance and a political kingdom. So they rejected the Messiah who offered deliverance from sin and ushered in God's kingdom by sacrificing his own life. People who lived during the time of Jesus created their own picture of who he was, just as people do today. Wow, we had it wrong. It didn't make Jesus happy, it made him cry. I often uh, wondered, you know, how could they be yelling Hosanna as a praise and then days later yelling crucify him? I never understood how you could be praising someone and, you know, worshiping them one day and then a few days later asking for them to be killed in the most brutal way known to mankind. But I get it now. I understand now. Knowing the real meaning of the word Hosanna totally changes the picture of that day. And also that totally changes the picture of the kids running through the church waving (laughs) palm branches. It's like giving them a flag and having them yell, give me liberty or Or give give me me death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a political statement. It's not a praise. Um, So, yeah, I, I don't think that we should be doing that anymore. (laughs) Uh, So when the people realized that Jesus was not coming as a political leader and was not going to deliver them from the Romans, they turned on him and now wanted to kill him. But let's not get ahead of the story. Now let's look at Passover. The point of the Passover celebration is to remember... The Jewish Passover festival is deeply rooted in the events of the Exodus from Egypt. The ministry of Jesus the Messiah is fundamentally linked to the Exodus experience of the Jewish people. Many events of the Exodus and Moses' life are echoed in the life of Jesus. And we would need hours to tell you all of that. There's so much. But no Exodus experience or revelation is more central to Jesus' mission than the Passover. Israel's deliverance and the meal by which the Jewish people have relived their deliverance ever since. According to the Gospel writers, Jesus celebrated his last Passover Seder, or Last Supper, meal with his disciples. In the Bible, the first Exodus, the first Passover, God brought his people to Sinai. When they were there, one of the things he did is to have the elders sit down for a meal after making a covenant with them, or with Israel. A meal in that culture was one way of coming together with people who needed to be reconciled and resolving their differences. And honestly, that's kind of how it still is. Yeah. So it was as if God is saying, look, 
This covenant is my way of showing you my mercy and resolving the differences between us. Let's eat together. So in a sense, this Passover meal is a reminder of reconciliation between God and people. There's another major emphasis. The Passover meal links together the great salvation experience of the Hebrew people with what Jesus came to do. And it provides an incredible picture of who we are called to be. If you read that story in the Hebrew Bible, you discover a word that occurs over and over again. The word is remember. Remember the night you put blood on your door. Remember when the angel of death passed by. Remember when you left Egypt. Remember when you were camped on the shore of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming in the distance. Remember. Remember is a word in Hebrew that's not easy to define. It implies an intense focus in a way that will allow that memory, that thing you are remembering, to shape you as you think of it and as you reflect on it. So, let's go to a few days later in that week and look at those last few hours with Jesus as he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. Just prior to Jesus meeting with his disciples for this meal, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? Snake. They were very happy about this and agreed to give him money. They paid him 30 pieces of silver, which how much would that have been? We don't know. Because he just says um, silver, but he doesn't say like, oh, like actually a specific... a specific what type of coin or whatever it was so we actually don't know how much it was i'm assuming it would have been more than 30 dollars yeah i think i think we know it would have been a decent amount but we don't know exactly how much that would be okay enough for him to be like sure i'll hand over the son of god to you so from that moment on judas looked for an opportunity to betray him you know it doesn't even matter how much 30 pieces of silver was because any amount of money should not have been enough to betray your king, your savior. Not just your, like, best friend for the past three years. I mean, they lived together. They were a family. You know, they were right. a a uh, close-knit group. But, yeah, your messiah, too. Right. That just says that uh, money was his god, basically. Right. Now, let's look at what we know as the famous Last Supper. There were four main elements to the Passover meal. They were lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine. But we'll come back to this later. One of the first things that happened at the Last Supper was when the disciples started arguing about who was the greatest. Now, artists have portrayed Jesus and his disciples sitting on chairs around or behind a high table, but this was not customary during Jesus' time. Participants of a Seder reclined on the floor around serving platters or low tables shaped like a horseshoe or an uppercase letter U. And this is important. There is a a great significance to the way they would have been seated and who would have been where. So to give you a better visual of what that would have looked like, we posted a diagram on our Really Facebook and Instagram pages. Right. 
This style of seating focused attention on one's status at a banquet. Okay, picture this. Imagine you're holding up a horseshoe like you're going to throw it. Everyone sat around the outside edge of the table. The host reclined at the second seat on the right. So it was on the top of the right side of the horseshoe. The most honored guest reclined to the host's right, and the next honored guest reclined to the host's left, and so on down the line. So the top three seats on the right would have been an honored guest, Jesus, and then the second honored guest. So the disciples' contention over who was the greatest may have been caused by their need to determine seating placement during the Seder. Clearly, the disciples had not taken Jesus' previous teaching to heart. So he once again emphasized that the servant ways of God's kingdom, the kingdom that he came to advance, were not the ways of the world. It seems likely that as a rabbi, and rabbis taught using words and actions, that Jesus demonstrated this truth by washing his disciples' feet. In John 13, 3-5 we read, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, when he got to Peter, he really struggled with Jesus doing this. For one reason, because Peter was probably seated at the first seat on the left side of the horseshoe, or you, and this was the servant's seat, so this would have been his responsibility, and now Jesus is doing this. Jesus tells Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you will. John 13 says, When he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So again, John would have been seated on the top right, picture our horseshoe or letter U and he was reclining at the table at Jesus side. Simon Peter would have probably been seated across from John on the opposite side on the top left and he motioned to him to ask Jesus who he's talking about who's going to betray him. Back to John 13 we continue on quote John leaning back against Jesus quietly said to him Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it into the bitter herbs. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas has the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Unquote. Now, the bitter herbs represented the Israelites' sufferings and bondage in Egypt. So it makes sense that Jesus would use this to indicate that Judas was the betrayer. Right, and Egypt isn't the only bondage. There's our bondage to sin, too. This had to have been a very bitter thing for Jesus to go through. Mm -hmm. In Luke 22, 19 through 20, it says, Now Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And in Matthew twenty six twenty nine, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now let's take a closer look to the very heart of the Passover. In Exodus 6, God made four promises to the Israelites. There were four cups presented during the Passover meal, and they represented these four promises. I will take you out, I will set you free, I will redeem you, and I will take you. So, these four promises became the basis for the four cups of the Passover they drank at the Seder. Let's take a closer look at each one and see what they meant. Okay, one, I will take you out. God promised to take the Israelites out of Egypt, out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. They wouldn't have all the sufferings of Egypt anymore. Two, I will set you free. God promised to take away their slave mentality. In a more modern illustration, he would take away their addiction, even their desire for their addiction. These first two cups would have been taken during the meal. Now, the third cup would have been followed after the meal. I will redeem you. This is the cup of redemption. Just as the children of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, Jesus said, Now this cup is my blood offered for you. This new covenant vow... I will redeem you out of your bondage to sin. It would have been with this cup that a blessing or thanksgiving would have been given. And the fourth one, I will take you out. God said, I will take you to myself and protect you. This was the cup of protection, the last cup. It is marriage language, like when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai. God said, I will take you to myself and you will be my people. Jesus left the Seder meal without drinking this last cup, the cup of protection. He knew he must fulfill his purpose and give his life in sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Jesus left the Seder meal without drinking this last cup, the cup of protection. He knew he must fulfill his purpose and give his life in sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Judas also left before drinking the cup of protection. That's true, yeah. He left before that too. 
In a thousand years of celebrating Passover, the celebration meal was had and then it was over. But like the first Passover, after the meal, the Passover had just begun. There's a whole lot more to this story, so don't miss part two.